James Madison advocated for a republic, a representative democracy. Quoting Federalist 10, a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. A key principle of a representative democracy is for voters to choose their elected officials. That's what makes the elected officials representative. James Madison's vice president was Elbridge Gary. As governor of Massachusetts, Gary's Democratic-Republican Party redrew the map of the state Senate districts in a dramatic and unusual way to weaken the Federalist Party, the opposing party, as much as possible. That new map, that district map, got mocked in the press to be shaped like a lizard or, coining a portmanteau, a gerrymander. Partisan gerrymandering, now usually, if wrongly, pronounced gerrymandering, subverts this principle, allowing elected officials to choose their voters. Gerrymandering can split up like-minded voters to diffuse their voices or pack them together to quarantine their impact. For example, the state of Michigan had a single street of six houses, home to three different districts. In this episode of Democracy Nerd, we are discussing the issue of partisan gerrymandering. We'll be only mildly fixated on the pronunciation, we'll probably go back and forth, and we'll look at the various steps being taken in response to district lines being drawn that heavily favor one party over the other. Our guests will include Katie Fahey, who helped lead the effort to pass Michigan's Measure 2 that banned that kind of partisan line drawing. Also, Patrick Roddenbush from the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, the organization led by Eric Holder, former attorney general, to create fair maps in Republican-controlled states that rode the Tea Party wave in 2010 to draw legislative maps that don't reflect the voter makeup in those states. Glad to be here. Let's start at the beginning. What is, well, actually, let's start at the beginning. I have a bone to pick. I have a bone to, and I'm not yet sure. <laughs> I'm not yet sure if the bone to pick I have is with you. But how do you pronounce the word that is the popular term for redistricting? Gerrymandering. <laughs> You're now my favorite person. You are now, there is not yet a Democracy Nerd Hall of Fame. When there is a Democracy Nerd Hall of Fame, there is some chance you will be the first ordained member. I hope so. <laughs> what is gerrymandering? So we go and we vote for our representatives every year. You have your congressional members. You have your in-state local representatives. So in Michigan, we have a state Senate and a state House of Representatives. But the people that you vote for are your representatives in your district. So there's a community of people all lumped together who vote for the same group of candidates to technically be represented by them in the state capitol or in Washington, D.C. Gerrymandering, uh, named by Elbridge Gary, who did it back near the founding of our country, actually, is when politicians and political parties try and, when drawing those lines, move them for a political advantage, trying to say, you know, we don't really want those voters because we think they're going to vote this way. We do want these voters. And they manipulate those lines. Instead of how will we get the best representation so that we can accurately reflect the citizens' will, how can we best move these lines to guarantee that we will win and that we can get more seats than our opponents? How was gerrymandering and gerrymandering impacting the political landscape in Michigan? How was the political representation the state was getting mapping to the electorate of the state? So Michigan 
for the last 70 years has been a very purple state. And what I mean by that is about 50% of the people who live here tend to vote for Democrats and about 50% of the people tend to vote for Republicans. Every now and then it'll switch a little bit, but um, we really are purple. Yet depending on once every 10 years after the census, when these lines get redrawn to take into account population shifts, whichever political party was in charge, the amount of seats that then after the election ended up actually going towards one party or the other was nowhere near 50%. At some times, you'd actually have one political party that won over 50%, so like 53% of the statewide vote, yet they actually would only have 40% or so of the seats. So some parties would actually have a super majority of allocated seats to them, even though the people of Michigan did not even vote 50-50 for that party. Really leading to distortion of how people are voting and who's getting represented. Um, So leading to a lot of different policy changes that might be overly conservative or overly liberal compared to where the actual people and constituents of Michigan are at. Why did you take on trying to address redistricting? You know, I was not in the political field at all. I didn't really want to be. I was in business uh, in the grocery industry and doing some recycling stuff. But in Michigan, there continued to be a lot of overreach from our local representatives. We had the Flint water crisis here in Michigan, which could have been prevented by a bill that the people of Michigan actually tried to repeal, but then our newly gerrymandered Congress decided to implement anyways because they weren't afraid of being unelected. Um, And I saw a lot of friends and family just being frustrated with the system, not wanting to participate, saying, you know, even when I do go and vote, it doesn't matter. And when I really looked at it and looked at the system, in some ways they were right. You know, that mathematically you have politicians once every 10 years going behind closed doors, purposely trying to make some constituents' votes count more and some constituents' votes count less. And knowing that the 2020 census was coming up soon, I didn't want another 10 years of elections where we already had a predetermined outcome all because of who was actually drawing these lines. So explain then the beginnings and the development of voters, not politicians. The- so <laughs> wasn't expecting to lead anything. Uh, didn't know how to run a political campaign. I had literally made a Facebook post that said, hey, I want to take on gerrymandering in Michigan. If you want to help, let me know. Smiley face. It was actually in an attempt to have a better Thanksgiving where instead of having to talk about who we voted for, we could talk about maybe a solution that I thought would have a lot of common ground, talking about how do we just make this fair for all voters instead of, you know, an advantage for politicians. Suddenly a bunch of people online that I didn't know were messaging me and saying, hey, I've been really concerned about this issue for a long time. I didn't know there was anything we could do about it. Let me know what the plan is, which is then when I had to figure out, okay, how do we create a plan? And we tried to look at the different options. In Michigan, we're lucky to be a ballot initiative state, which means that if the people of Michigan can write constitutional language and then gather a lot of signatures, in our case, we needed to gather 315,654 registered Michigan voter signatures in 180 days, then we could could qualify to put that language, that bill that we had created on the ballot for the 2018 election so that the whole state could actually vote on whether they wanted that to be the law. So it's kind of a workaround away from the legislators. And the reason with this type of issue with gerrymandering in particular, that you would want to have the people be the ones leading this change is that the politicians do not have a lot of incentive to give themselves less power. Really what we were trying to do is just change who is drawing the lines instead of the people who are already in office deciding who they want their constituents to be. We wanted um, an independent group of citizens to be drawing those lines. 180 days to gather half a million signatures. How did you do it? 
Yeah, and we ended up finishing early and with all volunteers, which was pretty exciting. You did an all-volunteer signature drive and got a half a million signatures? Uh, 428,000, yes, in about 110 days, and we got them from all 83 Michigan counties. We think is the first time that that has been done. How the heck did you pull this off? Well, there are a lot of people who are mad, honestly. We knew that we didn't like the status quo, but what, what kind of solution do we even want? Who should draw the lines? How should those lines be drawn? What kind of criteria should be used? What should the process look like? Being somebody who wasn't a policy expert, I didn't know, but also thinking about, okay, if we're going to have the whole population of Michigan, or at least everybody who's going to show up to the election voting on this, why don't we go ask what people want? So what we did really early on when we announced we were going to be doing this, a lot of people were confused because they said, okay, what's your solution? And we said, we don't know. We want to know what you guys think. And we held town halls across our state. We did 33 and 33 days where we went to all of our congressional districts at least twice, held them online, tried to make sure we were accounting for different access levels. And we went and talked to our neighbors and our family and our friends. And we said, okay, here's what the heck redistricting is. Here's what it looks like in Michigan. Here's what it looks like in other states who don't have politicians drawing the lines. And then we had a survey and a conversation about what is important to us as the people of Michigan. What, How do we want these lines to be drawn? Should it just be looking pretty on a map? Should it be trying to make sure that different interests are kept together so their voices can be stronger in Washington and in our state capital? Or what should that really look like? And through doing that, we talked to a lot of people. And at each of those meetings, we broke down that large number that we needed. And we said, you know, if we can get a couple thousand people to commit to gathering at least 10 signatures a week for a couple months, then we can actually do this. It's all volunteers. And even printing petitions, though, cost $40,000. And we had just started a bank account. But that's another thing where we just said, you know, if we can get this many people to donate $25 by this date, then we can actually do this. Trying to break down those goals and make it accessible and then inviting people in and, and putting the accountability on us. Because the reality was nobody was going to come do this for the people of Michigan besides us. Were you surprised by the response that you got? I was. You know, I knew I had been interested in this just from paying attention to, you know, the local radio talking about politics or reading different articles. Like I said, I wasn't in the political industry. I remembered learning about gerrymandering in elementary school and then in college. But when we went and talked to our neighbors, nobody felt like the system was working for them. And so then when we could look at, okay, what might be one of the main reasons why redistricting and gerrymandering seemed like one of those where politicians are insulating themselves, but they're also from even their first look at a map of who their constituents are, they're looking at us as just Democrats or Republicans or independents instead of actual people, regardless of political party. And I just think that resonated with a lot of people and they were willing to step up and do the work. And we had some really creative things too. I mean, we had people who talked to the workers at rest stops on our highways to figure out which ones were the most popular to then go set up card tables over Thanksgiving and the day before Thanksgiving when we have a lot of car traffic in Michigan to gather signatures at those rest stops and people who were going up to the, you know, the tractor pull festival to make sure that they were getting and going to talk to their neighbors and just football games, all those kinds of community ways where once you start stopped and said, you know, are you happy with the state of politics? It really was a very large concern that nobody is. And we want to do something about it. And here was one way that we could try. What would your overall budget for the campaign? First, the signature gathering portion and then the campaign, the whatever ad campaign 
everything you did in order to pass it? So for the first year and a half, which made it through signature gathering as well as our legal fight all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court where they tried to say you shouldn't be allowed to gather signatures based on redistricting because it's too complicated. We had a little under, it was probably like $1.8 million that it took to do that. Uh, We were pretty lean. Um, Like I said, printing petitions is a big cost. That was like $40,000, making sure we had a legal team. And the really inspiring part to me is we had 16,000 individual donors who stepped up to give money to fund that. That gave us a little over $2 million. These were everyday people from across our entire state who were giving what they could, but when it added up, it helped us keep those base costs. But then when it came to TV, TV was very expensive, millions of dollars per week to just get our message out there. So we actually ended up raising over $16 million by the end of the campaign, which most of it in the very end just for TV, but on an issue like redistricting, where it only happens once every 10 years, when it does happen, it happens behind closed doors and the people doing it don't want the public to really know what they're doing. We found that we just had to remind people that this was an issue and and just remind them even what it was, what this process was, and that there was another way, that you didn't have to have politicians join the line. So that education campaign of just letting people know that we were on the ballot was a really big lift that we had to do, but ended up being very successful. So $16 million campaign, that's no small thing. That That isn't just no. a handful of town hall meetings and s- sending out a Facebook post. Where did you, what did you start doing to gather that money? What was the fundraising operation like in the early days and then how did it evolve? So in the early days, it was always, like I said, for the first, really up until the last probably 60 days of the campaign, we were very poorly funded. We didn't, you know, I ended up quitting my day job in July of 2018, but we had started in November of 2016. So, you know, we didn't even have anybody working on the campaign full time besides all of us, just with all of our nights and weekends working on this. Thousands of volunteers were the ones who really made this a reality. And it was going and talking about what are these costs, making sure that we were being really transparent and letting people know how much money we had raised and what we needed to raise next. So, you know, before we could get our legal team, we had a $100,000 retainer we needed. So we just let all of our volunteers know. And then a lot of us had to go and ask our family and friends, which is really weird, honestly, if you've never been a part of a political campaign to then go and say like, yeah, we're on this this ballot initiative for gerrymandering and people are like the social studies thing (laughs) like what and then you know being new to the political realm I didn't know who any of the funders were or who traditionally fund these things but basically we made a good business plan a campaign plan talking about how we thought we needed to win looking at the public data that's available from other campaigns looking at how many voters were estimated to turn out and then what that meant in regards to buying TV and thankfully found some people nationally who were looking to help support local. One really eye-opening thing that happened about 15 days out before the end of the election, our opposition with only two donors dropped about $4 million in fake ads 15 days out before the election. From two donors, $4 million. And over two years from 16,000 donors, we had only raised $2 million. Thankfully, we had been out and talking to larger organizations, foundations, good governance groups who did help fund us. But if we wouldn't have been able to respond, I think, you know, the voters only have so much time to make their decisions on how am I going to vote for all of these things on the ballot and uh, definitely got my feet wet pretty quickly on how to raise a lot of money. Who are the two big donors that dumped $4 million to try to beat you? So the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the state level, was helping with that. And then there's a group called the Michigan Freedom Fund, which the DeVos family, if anybody's familiar with them, Betsy DeVos is our uh, Secretary of Education in um, Washington, D.C., and they have helped fund that uh, Michigan Freedom Fund, but it's a super PAC, so hard to know where the exact money is coming from. What national groups helped 
helped you? We had a lot of help from a lot of different groups. So um, Common Cause was a great ally where they've helped a lot of different states work on the actual like language and ballot initiative process. They didn't do uh, direct fundraising, but they really helped us with what are the important um, considerations when you're doing one of these initiatives. And they were, you know, came to Michigan and helped us connect with commissioners in other states too. So we were able to bring examples from other states on how this has been done differently. A big thing for voters is it was scary to try and think about doing this in a different way, to being able to hear from other states and realize that this isn't really a radical idea. We just haven't done it yet here in Michigan was a big bridge that we didn't already have the connections for. What was the argument or what were the arguments that the Michigan Freedom Fund and the DeVos family and Michigan Chamber of Commerce used to try to beat you? What was what, How'd they spend their $4 million and presumably eventually more than that uh, to try to defeat Proposal 2 in Michigan? So <laughs> there's a couple that are kind of, I think, ridiculous. But, you know, one is that gerrymandering isn't a thing, that these lines are only drawn with the best of intentions once every 10 years, even though it's done behind closed doors, based on geography. But the easy thing you do with voters then is you just show them a picture of the map and you say, does this look like it represents your community? A house seat in Michigan near where I went to college, there is one street where there's six houses on it and they're in three different house districts. And I actually ran all six houses. It took me 46 seconds. I have to interrupt you. There's one, say this, there's one street street uh-huh. has six houses mm-hmm. and it has how many districts? Three. How? Exactly. And if you look at the map, it's like the tiniest point on the map where they just kind of like grab those houses because technically a district has to be connected. So they need at least one house to keep it connected to then go and grab another area of voters that probably was either more Democrat or Republican. It was like a tunnel. It was like a little string so that they could get to another mass to be able to draw the district that they wanted. Right. And we talked to the people who live on that street and they were saying, you know, we get candidates knocking on our door all the time where we're like, we actually can't vote for you. Like the candidates don't even know which houses belong to which street. But all those kids, you know, their kids go on the same school bus. Their actual interests for when they'd want to go and talk to a representative are the same, yet they have to go talk to three different people and hope one of them happens to care about their little sliver of their district, which is like very eye-opening and cuts through that argument too. So I, I ran the, the six districts and it took me 46 seconds to run through all six, all three districts. Um, and we actually got a video to go a little bit viral on that too, just showing like the absurdity of it. Back to, um, the, back to the signature gathering, some of our community, I mean, you know, we're democracy nerds and how one wins issues and debates issues with respect to democracy is really important. And that includes sort of the tactics and strategies of winning campaigns. On the ballot signature gathering itself, how much do you think you spent just on that? Did you break that down in the budget? And then what was the essentially like dollars per signature that you had to spend? So we didn't pay for signatures at all. The thing that we had to pay for were printing the petition. So that cost about $40,000. We paid to verify the signatures so that we could keep track of how many and whether they were gathered correctly or not. And that was maybe, um, that was probably our largest expense, which I think was around seventy dollars or $80,000. And then the other thing, which is kind of a fun story that I can get into if you'd like me to, was we had to pay for clipboards and just the materials people had, like pens and things. Um, and we actually ended up, it would have cost us a lot of money to buy the clipboards, but we actually ended up cutting our own clipboards and making them for about 10 cents each. We made 6,000 of them so that every volunteer could have a really professional looking tool. We knew that we had a wood carver and we were trying to find a place for everybody and they ended up doing this awesome thing where they're like, okay, hold on, let's see if we can do this and created registries at Home Depots and Lowe's where people could donate the right size of wood. And then we, you know, we were an internet group so we hadn't met in person. So we had people meet in a warehouse at night with all of this donated wood and then cut all of 
these clipboards. They ended up putting a local map on the back of each of them with the district where the volunteer would be so that they could talk about the exact community that was being impacted. And then we pretty much Pony Express them where people, you know, would take a couple thousand in their car and then drive to the next person who would drive to the next person to distribute them across the state. You had to pay for the signature sheets. You had to pay for the verification. You had to pay for the clipboards. The uh, mm-hmm. All of that, was you're doing most of that with online individual fundraising. At this point, had you found any major donors in this in this first period during the 180 days when you had to gather the signatures? No, we had one local organization that ended up donating, I think, $100,000. So that was our largest donation at that point, um, right who's, who's the, the organization? where we really wanted to guarantee the funding for the verification. Who is the organization? The Beckwith Fund. They like had won a, a lawsuit back in the day, and so now they give money out every year for good governance. Katie, it seems that your campaign had soul. It seemed instead of just saying, hey, give us blank number of dollars because we have done A-B testing on our emails, and it seems like this is the kind of amount that we should ask for, you made lots of intentional choices. The campaign team made lots of intentional choices to have it, in fact, be a grassroots campaign, and it feels like the campaign had soul. It did. I think for a lot of us, we had never done this before. And we wanted to do it right, but we wanted to do it for the right reasons, too. It was to literally feel like we were improving our democracy and our representation. It was so many late, late nights, so many sacrifices. But the thing we kept coming back to was this will guarantee more fair elections for every generation to come in Michigan. And if we don't do this now, nobody else is going to come and save us, basically. Like, we've got to do it ourselves. And I think that was just the soul of it. The fact that we were strangers, I mean, that was the other really bizarre part in the beginning. None of us knew each other, so whether people were going to actually do work and then just having that faith in each other and and really just trying to do the right thing, regardless of knowing how we voted in the presidential election. It was one of those things where you felt like that's what democracy is supposed to feel like. And that was really the, the spirit of the campaign. If you either know or can estimate the total cost of the signature gathering operation, recognizing you didn't pay directly signature gatherers, but you may have had to pay some staff to coordinate this stuff. You certainly had to pay all the costs. Yeah, we you, didn't pay staff. You we didn't. Paid no one. So have you figured out the total cost of the signature gathering operation and the cost per signature? I'm sure we did at some point, but I mean, it was definitely under half a million dollars. It was maybe like 300000 So you caught, you spent about $300,000 to gather 428,000 signatures. That's less than a dollar a signature. Places in other states, people are spending 4 or $5 to gather uh, per signature. And the accuracy rate was just, I mean, we had to beg people to stop gathering signatures because we didn't want to have to pay for more verification because we already had it. But it was because people were donating their professional skills. Even though we weren't in the political field, like we all had our day job skills that we could apply to building this together. And I think that was another great way where we could just kind of create these opportunities. And that's a big part of what I'm working on now is trying to take some of the tools that we created and just make them more available for people because the barrier to getting better democracy shouldn't be that you don't have enough money to pay for signatures. And it is possible to do, but it was certainly hard and took a lot of hard work and a lot of people's donations of time and energy and creativity. So it sounds like the really expensive thing in this first phase prior to the campaign making it onto the ballot and people having a chance to vote and having to pay for ads Then there was a court challenge. Who brought that court challenge? The Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the state level, um, and the Michigan Freedom Fund were the ones who brought the court challenge to say that we were uh, we shouldn't be able to use the citizen ballot initiative process to bring a ballot proposal about redistricting to the people of Michigan. And why did they care so much? 
Well, really, in Michigan for the last 30 years, although Democrats and Republicans have both won in charge, taken advantage of being able to draw the lines in our state, the last 30 years, really, the chamber and some of the people they have paid for have been the actual people drawing the lines, the same group of people, which I didn't know until uh, we got into this court case and there was more information being revealed, but they had benefited from being able to make those really big decisions on how are the next 10 years of elections going to turn out. And so I think they wanted to do everything they possibly could to make sure that we wouldn't be able to qualify for the ballot. And I really think that they thought they were going to throw us off there, too. There hadn't been many cases challenging the petition process, which makes it hard because you don't know what you will and won't get thrown off for. And also, in the past, Michigan's courts have tended to vote along party lines and what party interests were. But thankfully, this time they did not. In the court challenge, what were their arguments? Their argument basically was that redistricting because right now, you know, the process does uh, impact different parts of the government. So, you know, the judicial branch is involved, the legislative branch is involved, you know, that that process was complicated and therefore too complicated for the people of Michigan to be able to form opinions on and be able to vote on. You're only supposed to have like a single issue that you're bringing to the ballot. Uh, Ours was a single issue, just redistricting, but because it was comprehensive and we had included a lot of language to make sure that the system couldn't be gamed by one party or another, they, they were saying that, you know, it wasn't one issue and that it was too complicated. So really they needed the legislature to be the ones who would ever make a change to this process because they are much more qualified than the people of Michigan to do that. Say the first argument again. Yeah, the first argument was basically that it was too complicated for the people of Michigan. That when there are issues that are so complicated that the precedent would be that either we would have a state constitutional convention that would address how these lines should be drawn or that it really is to the legislature because the ballot initiative process is it's like another version of the single issue rule basically. Got it. Now how did you end and, up And lying? literally they like said like oh it has too many words in this law that you're proposing. So that's why it shouldn't be like they were trying to use that as a test for why it shouldn't be on there. How did you end up finding the lawyers to help you out? And how did you end up paying for them? So when we were writing our policy language, we anybody who wanted to be a part of the committee could. Um, we still wanted to, of course, make sure that we were writing very solid constitutional language. But it, it was really interesting because we got a lot of people who weren't traditional constitutional experts who maybe were an HR lawyer. But we also had people who were brain surgeons and veterinarians and um, and a birthing doula, actually. Uh, but folks who liked doing research and knew how was to the do bir- Did the research. birthing doula end up being useful? Did you? She did. She was amazing. She actually did a lot of research on how the commissioners will be chosen by studying examples across the country and across the world of how do you get an actual representative body of people and was one of the key people who found uh, some of the best research and and could present different examples of how we do that. She was very useful. So Um, keep going. You had a big big group of people. (laughs) Yeah, we had a big group of people. And so for a lot of the figuring out what are the solutions and, and then taking that data that we were getting from those town halls we were doing, asking people what they thought the solution should be. We would craft the language. And then one of our early volunteers was a retired judge. And so he was really key. We had a lawyer on a very cheap retainer who was helping us too. And we ended up bringing in a couple additional experts when it came to it. You know, one of the decisions we wanted to make, because we were very truly nonpartisan, was even which legal firm to go with. Because most of the firms who have the most 
best experience in the courts are either a Democrat or a Republican firm. Um, and we went with a pretty neutral, if not a little right-leaning firm for the end of it. And they did give us a very a generous discount, too. Who is the law firm, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, uh, Fraser Trebilcock is their name. Michigan, uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit based or where, where in uh, Lansing based, Lansing, uh, based. which is our state capital. And who are their, who are their normal clients of a firm like that? When I think of uh, Michigan, big law firms, this might not be a big law firm, but I would probably think of Ford and GM, but were they, do they do a lot of elections laws? Or do they normally do other stuff. They do more municipal. They do like some city level stuff they have done in the past, a couple of ballot initiatives. There's a big casino ballot initiative that they had done before. Every now and then they'll work with maybe some members of the Senate or of the House, but they aren't really the go-to constitutional R or D uh, firm. But they, but they are kind of in the municipality realm, which tends to be more nonpartisan. Now, you said you spent $1.8 million during this year and a half, which included the signature gathering and the legal challenge. You said it was about $300,000 for the signature gathering, which leaves $1.5 million for the legal challenge. Am I doing my math right? Yeah. I mean, we had other expenses like a website and being able to print literature and buying projectors, that kind of stuff. We spent under a million for our law firm by the end of it, um, but it was pretty close to one, if I'm remembering correctly. And this is now becoming your full-time job, and you're running a pretty large organization at this point. Yeah, yeah, about 10,000 volunteers. We had about 5,000 that were actively every single day doing something, which is pretty incredible. It was really like a an company, honestly. So what, what was the proposal that two laid out? What were you going to do instead of having the legislature, having the political process draw the lines? So um, there were a couple different parts to it, but basically that we wanted a group of citizens to be in charge of actually drawing the line, that those citizens should not be the political insiders. So anybody who's a, a very recent or a current politician is excluded from serving on the commission, although they can still give testimonies to the commission, like every other Michigan citizen, um, that they kind of be a registered lobbyist. And when we were going around the state, what was really important to people is that there was an equal balance of Democrats, Republicans, independents, or third-party voters. So the commission will be 13 people, four from the majority party, four from the minority, and five independent or other voters. So what that will likely look like in 2020 will be four Democrats, four Republicans, and five independent or third-party voters. The commissioners will be, they can apply to be on the commission, but we also have the Secretary of State, which will send out applications. And really, they're chosen, you know, they're vetted through this criteria of the application, but they're chosen through a lottery that is weighted for the demographics of the state, so that you don't have everybody just being from Detroit, that you have geographic diversity, gender diversity, age diversity, as well as this political diversity. And then the really big thing with redistricting is the actual rules for how to draw the lines. That's where most of the power comes into play. Yes, you have these people who ultimately make some of these decisions, but if you have really clear lines and if they're in the Constitution, if those rules are violated, then the maps are deemed illegal and you would have to redraw them. And our criteria for drawing these lines was focused around you know, making sure that we follow the federal laws, that there should be equal population in the districts, that we follow the Voting Rights Act, we actually make gerrymandering illegal, which is really important. Right now, it is perfectly legal to say, yes, we looked at where Democrats live and we tried to make their votes count less than Republicans, which is a little horrifying. Because another thing that's a problem with the status quo is that politicians are in office and drawing the lines for the election they are about to run in. So if they feel like they have some pretty stiff competition and they might lose, they can draw their competition out of the district a couple months before the election. We make sure that the lines are drawn to roughly match the actual vote outcome
outcome of the election. So in gerrymandering law, this is a concept called symmetry. So basically seat share where how the people of Michigan vote should roughly be how the seats are allocated. And then we look out for things like compactness, making sure they're reasonably sized as well. Um, and then the process is the last part that really has changed. So that behind the closed doors, secret meetings and bunkers where gerrymandering normally happens so that nobody can ever really know for sure why a lot line was drawn the way it was, is being completely flipped on its head. Every single meeting that these commissioners hold has to be public. We also are trying to make it as accessible as possible. So there'll be you know video recordings where people can submit online comments to if they can't come to these public hearings. And all of their data that they are used and for every single map that they draw will be made publicly available too, so it should be replicatable. And for the final map to be actually voted on, you'll need at least two of the Democrats, two of the Republicans, and two of the independent or third-party voters to all agree to that final map before it can be approved, which is just another way of trying to add some assurance that, you know, these lines are being drawn with the intention of actually representing the people of Michigan and not the personal political interest of any one party. We've been talking to Katie Fahey. This is Democracy Nerd. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. Patrick, welcome. Patrick Roddenbush, Communications Director with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little about your background. My background, uh, personally, so I've been the Communications Director here at the NDRC since uh, late 2017. Uh, before that, I worked in the Obama administration in a couple different roles. Uh, I spent some time at the White House press office. I worked at the Justice Department in that press office and sort of Got my start on the Hill in the Senate uh, more than a decade ago working for my home state senator, Ted Kennedy. So sort of been in D.C. in various jobs and roles uh, over the past decade. Explain the background of Red Map. Sure. So like taking a step back, you know, redistricting in the United States happens every 10 years. We do the census, the states get that data, and they draw new maps for their state legislature and their congressional delegation. So REDMAP was a project that started by Republicans in 2010. They looked at states around the country. They looked where they could gain uh, control over state legislatures. In most states, state legislators are the ones who draw the maps. And they identified a handful of what were essentially swing states where they could spend not a whole lot of money in the grand scheme of politics, about 30 to $35 million dollars, and flip a bunch of state legislative chambers, thereby giving them control of the map drawing process. Uh, 2010 was uh, not a great year for Democrats. And so Republicans were able to, by focusing on the state legislatures uh, in places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, Texas, um, you know, these handful of swing states, they were able to uh, gain control of the map drawing process they, in 2011, set about using uh, new technology, uh, Maptitude, and this sort of new mapping software that had not been around uh, previously uh, during redistricting cycles. 
and set about drawing maps that favored their party uh, in ways that we had never really seen before, or two extremes that we had never really seen before. And so what ended up happening was we've had over the past nine years or so a disproportional amount of Republican representation in the United States House of Representatives and in state legislators, uh, state legislatures around the country. How successful was Red Map? <laughs> it was extremely successful, uh, unfortunately. You look at, so the maps were drawn in 2011, the first time that people voted on these new maps then was 2012. This is a year where nationally Democrats did okay, right? President Obama gets reelected uh, more than 50% of the vote. Um, if you look down ballot, though, at uh, races for the United States House of Representatives, Democrats actually won in total uh, a million and about a million, 1.4, 1.5 million more votes than Republicans. But Republicans retained a 31 or 32 seat majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. So like the, that, and that is sort of what gerrymandering does. It skews what people are voting for, who they're voting for, toward what the politicians who drew the lines want. And not only did that happen in 2012, but we've seen that play out in uh, subsequent elections. So even in 2018, historic blue wave you know, we have uh, people voting in record numbers across the country. Uh, the Associated Press did an analysis that found, but for Republican gerrymandering, Democrats actually could have picked up an additional 16 to 17 seats in the United States House of Representatives. And the same thing played out uh, in state legislatures across the country, too. If you look at a state like North Carolina, you know, Democrats got about 51 percent of the vote in races for their General Assembly. And yet, you know, Republicans still control pretty substantial majorities in the state Senate and the state House. Why not just call it Blue Map? <laughs> we are, well, our goal is not necessarily to make the map strictly blue. Uh, we are actually seeking fair maps, which is why we have come out in favor of independent uh, citizen-led redistricting committees. Why have Democrats been so behind in <laughs> prioritizing state legislative races and prioritizing districting? You know, that is a very good question, and I don't know that I have a particularly good answer for it, uh, other than to say uh, we learned our lesson in 2010 and 2011, and that is why an organization, that our, my organization, the NDRC, exists. We had, I think in 2010, there was a focus of the Democrats on trying to, you know, hold on to the House, hold on to the Senate, and we lost sight of these really critical state legislative seats and, and governor seats as well. You know, governors often sign the maps uh, before they go into law, and we've paid the price since then. You know, you had, I think, during the course of President Obama's second term, you know, he was pushing for some broadly popular proposals that just died, you know, in the House of Representatives. Look at immigration, you know, an issue that is a fault line in American politics. But in 2013, you had uh, Republicans and Democrats in the United States Senate come together on a pretty broadly popular reform bill. Uh, they worked together. Uh, it was a, you know, old-fashioned bipartisan compromise. And they passed it, you know, with more than 60 votes in the Senate. But then it went to uh, the House of Representatives and died. You know, we saw time and again where you know, vote totals did not match representation. Uh, we saw broadly popular proposals go to die in Congress. And there was an acknowledgement by leadership in the Democratic Party, uh, that being President Obama himself, uh, Eric Holder, the former attorney general who chairs our organization, but also people like Governor Terry McAuliffe, governor of Virginia, you know, come together and say, we cannot allow what happened last time in 2010 and 2011 to happen again. And so even before the election in 2016, 
there was a sort of a plan in place that Democrats were going to create a you know redistricting committee that was going to take a holistic approach uh, to the redistricting process. The move now is interesting. Instead of fighting fire with fire, you've decided to fight fire with water. And the question is whether the water will be able to put the fire out. What you said is instead of trying to do the same operation to make maps that favor Democrats, you want to try to fight to make maps that don't favor anybody except for the people. Explain. Yeah, I think that, first of all, gerrymandering is just bad period. It undermines our democracy. If you look at any you know poll that's been done of voters over the last decade, there is this feeling, you know, our political system is just broken. And, and there are a lot of causes of that. There's, you know, dark money, um, and, and there's also gerrymandering. And it's our view that uh, gerrymandering is just, you know, wrong, period. And so what we want to do is put in place these independent citizen-led commissions, which is what they have in California, Arizona, and a handful of states passed them last year. Now, it's also true, unfortunately, that Republicans, because in many cases, in many states, of the gerrymandering that occurred in 2011, you know, Democrats just do not have power at the state level. It's not possible for us to go through these states as ruthlessly as Republicans did uh, and gerrymander. And so you look at a state like Wisconsin, where, you know, they locked in, in 2011, Scott Walker and the Republicans in the legislature. They drew gerrymanders such that there are five Republicans and three Democrats in the congressional delegation, and the state legislature is even worse. The Republicans can win less than 50% of the vote, and really, they actually control two-thirds of state assembly there. And so it's not, you know, we are fighting an uphill battle just to get Democrats to have a seat at the table in a lot of these states. It's not even possible for us to go forward and gerrymander them in the way that Republicans did. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh-huh, First, sure. on the merits of the project from a policy standpoint, from a yep. factual standpoint, and second, from a strategic standpoint. So first, yep. on the on sort of a factual merit standpoint, choices of how to draw districts will be made. Now, somebody can look at an old gerrymandered, gerrymandered district and see, you know, if it looks really, really wacky, you can look at it and say, wow, that looks really, really wacky. But very often, it's choices that won't look all that wacky on a map. For instance, taking the city of Austin and deciding, well, are you going to put a ring around the city of Austin and make it one seat? Or are you going to carve it up into two parts? Are you going to carve it up into four parts? That doesn't look all that weird. Those are, you know, mathematically legitimate choices. There are going to be choices made. The strategic concern is that if Democrats, if under the blue banner, they're saying, hey, let's make it so that people draw districts that favor neither party. And if that takes hold in Democratic states, takes hold in blue states, and all of a sudden you have blue states that are drawing neutral maps and red states that are drawing red maps, you end up with, on balance, a significantly skewed towards the red, towards the Republican set of maps. Tell me what I'm missing, either in terms of the merits or in terms of the strategy. You know, one thing that you're missing is that if you look at traditionally blue states, again, do not have the opportunity to gerrymander in the same way that some Republican states do. Like California has in place a citizen commission, and that's going to stay in place. That is the biggest blue state in the country. And we do fine there, right? We do fine. Like Texas, this is why we're fighting so hard 
to flip the House of Representatives in the state. Democrats need to pick up nine seats. If we do that and get somebody with a seat at the table, then we're able to stop Republicans from carving up Austin, you know, four different ways. And then you get more balance in the congressional representation. But like the reality is just there's not as many places for Democrats to gerrymander in the way that Republicans did. And there's also, I think Republicans will often, you know, just say, oh, well, Democrats cluster in cities. It's not, you know, it's not our gerrymandering. They just are clustered in cities. But there is some truth that it is harder for Democrats to carve up districts in the same way that Republicans have. That softens my concern, but it doesn't seem that it resolves my concern. Yet maybe there are some Democratic states that are moving in the direction of citizen commissions. But by the way, that already starts responding to my question, which is that's sort of the dynamic. In red states, they're gerrymandering, gerrymandering. And in blue states, you're pushing them to do commissions. So what we're going to have is a set of balanced states that should be voting blue and imbalanced states are voting red and exacerbates the problem. I I mean, I I hear that. I, I think we're just on a little bit of different sides of the issue. I think that there is baked into the Democratic Party this idea of fairness and that we want a level playing field. And I think, you know, I I get that there's going to be a couple seats maybe in states. If you look at Maryland, for example, so, you know, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, this past spring in um, over the maps that were drawn in Maryland, and there was a Democratic gerrymander there over one seat, and the maps that were drawn in North Carolina, which was actually drawn so that Republicans would have 10 of the 13 congressional seats. You know, our view is that if we get to a place where there uh, is balance, you know, if the Supreme Court had said, let's put boundaries on partisan gerrymandering, we would have lost a seat in Maryland. That's fine. We would also likely gain a handful of seats in North Carolina. And I think that's for the best. You know, gerrymandering itself, it's the, the issue I think that we have with it is not just the way that it skews representation. It skews our political system well beyond Election Day. People who represent gerrymandered districts are much more likely to take positions that are very far to the right or the left. You know, if you are from a gerrymandered district, you're more concerned about a primary challenge than a general election. And so that has one of the factors that's contributed to the hyperpolarization of our country over the last 10 years. There's no incentive for people from gerrymandered districts to come together on reasonable solutions because the voters in their district won't reward, reward them for it. And so we need to get to a place where we have better maps, more fair maps that represent the people of the state. And, and like we can actually start solving some of the problems that we have as a country. Here is my here is my challenge on the question of unilateral disarmament. Yeah. And first of all, I don't think we're on different sides. I think where we would agree is what what this uh, community with this show is about is being pro-democracy, right? And I yep. think that the political party that embraces being pro-democracy yep. uh, is the political party that I hope, and I would love it if there were more than one political party that did this, and whichever political party does this, I hope would get more support rather than less support. And nonetheless, I see this dynamic, and that one could make an argument that, well, what Democrats ought to really do is be working a lot harder than they have in uh, in w- yep. winning state legislative chambers. I still remember in 2010 uh, when, uh, in fact, I participated in some pitches uh, to uh, to some national organization, national funders, and there wasn't that much interest. And yeah, I was still very interested yeah. in it, but the guy that was my cohort on the thing wasn't as interested in it and just set it aside. And that ended up being, in my judgment, historically important that in 2010 there wasn't a national push, an innovative push, a 
resourced push for state legislative races around the country. Yeah. I mean, there there's some national push for sure, but compared to the apparatus that it was opposing, there was much less. One of the challenges we face is that when Republicans go to their base, they are also going to their money. Whereas yeah. in many respects, when Democrats go to their base, they're going away from their money. And if you're Eric Holder and if you're working in a private law firm, your large clients are not a bunch of Bolsheviks. Your large clients are not a bunch of Bernie Sanders voters. It's not a bunch of people who are all the time talking about free health care for everybody or Green New Deal. That if you say, hey, we're going to go in, we're going to make Blue Map, then ah, that doesn't sound quite as good in the in the Tony corners and in the hallowed halls. But if you say, hey, we just want to be for a fair process, then you can do that. And then ultimately, that is what shapes the leadership. This leadership shapes on down and it makes it harder for the Democratic Party to fight hard when maybe what should be happening is the Democratic Party should be fighting hard and there should be a nonpartisan or much less partisan push for nonpartisan redistricting. I, I recognize you see the challenge and we don't have to spar about it, but I do wonder, yeah. how do you think about it? How do you make sure that, because right now there is a push in Oregon for a commission. This is the kind of state that's going to listen to you, right? This is the kind of state yeah. that might listen to me. This is the kind of state, oh, well, Obama says it, Eric Holder says it, let's get that through both chambers legislature get yeah. the governor to sign it and all of a sudden oregon has a map that is less favoring democrats but that doesn't happen in any of the republican states i recognize that you want to be pro-democracy still how do you think through that strategic challenge because i don't think it's a fake one our strategy is we are a national organization and, and we have supporters you know, around the country, you have a grassroots arm that was launched earlier this year. We are actually really hyper-focused on just a handful of states, organizing in about 10 or 12 states. And we're really focused on breaking up Republican trifectas in the states where they had them in 2010, 2011. You know, we're going to spend a lot of money in places like Texas, Florida, North Carolina, to try to get Democrats a seat at the table. Because if the maps were drawn tomorrow, you would have in Texas another red map. And so our you know, strategic priority is really to go to these states that are the most gerrymandered and try to find a way to get them to a better place. So let's get nerdy on the states, because I do think ultimately that's the answer. You said Texas, where you want to yep. pick up nine seats. Uh, yep. uh, you said Georgia. What do you got to do in Georgia? We've got to flip one of the chambers in the legislature. You know, is uh, Stacey Abrams, that election, the gubernatorial election last fall, was disappointing for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of which is that, uh, you know, Brian Kemp is going to be in place to sign the map in 2021. And so, you know, we are trying uh, and we'll do all that we can to either flip one or both of those chambers. Uh, the other thing that we're doing in a lot of these states is starting to build up grassroots networks so that we want to force transparency on the process. And so a state like Georgia, it's going to be tough, you know, to be frank, tough to flip uh, either one of those chambers. But what we can do, uh, hopefully, is get in place, you know, a lot of grassroots activists who during the redistricting process in 2021 are advocating for fair maps. They are pushing their state legislators to be more open about what they're trying to do, be more open about the process, uh, and then sort of by shining a spotlight on it, hopefully uh, get to a better place. And so th there's not, you know, we're not relying on necessarily one tactic. It's we want to have a bunch of different things in place to make that happen. You, as somebody who watched what happened in 2011, not to harp too much on, on that, but Republicans literally were going into locked hotel rooms in some states, drawing maps in secret, and then putting them on the floor of their chamber and voting on them in 12 or 24 hours. So we can't let that happen again. So we're trying to either get a seat at the table or force transparency into the process. Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, what is most notable to you? 
Yeah, uh, you also skipped over North Carolina, I think. North I was Carolina. saving that one. I was saving oh, okay. that one, man. Okay. That was my big I'll, segue for the okay. big next thing. But anyway, keep going. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> I, I'll, go, I'll go the Northeast then. So Pennsylvania is a state where, you know, we have uh, Governor Wolf as a Democrat who is uh, reelected in 2018, you have a pretty gerrymandered state legislature, but we have an opportunity to pick up one of those chambers. But Pennsylvania is an interesting, you know, they went through a process where there was uh, a lawsuit in the state court in 20, late 2017, early 2018, that forced a redraw of the congressional delegation. So it went from what had been a map that was drawn to benefit Republicans, and it, it held, it was 13 Republicans and five Democrats to you know, the court forced a, a redraw of the congressional map such that it's now nine Democrats, nine Republicans, and accurately reflects Pennsylvania, what their political makeup is. New Hampshire, I'll say, you know, we're actually pretty fired up about New Hampshire right now because you have their uh, Republican governor, but a democratically held state legislature. And earlier this spring, uh, Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature put forward an independent commission bill. It passed with bipartisan support in the state house and unanimously in the state senate and you know we supported this bill we thought it was good uh, and then you know a couple of weeks ago governor sununu came out and vetoed the bill he said you know this is not good for new hampshire we should let politicians continue drawing the line that's just incredibly disappointing so well, pretty fired up about new hampshire this has been the change in the dynamic that i've seen over the last well, I, i've really noticed it over the last about seven eight years where it used to be that it seemed like there was some unified appreciation of small d democratic processes, at yep. least a veneer of them. At least someone who got elected yep. statewide would not want to come out in favor of voter suppression, in favor mm -hmm. of drawing funky lines, in favor of secret money. But yep. what has seemed more clear is yep. that over the last several years, it's just more brazen. There's not even a veneer anymore. No, and, and like his justification for the veto was nonsense. He, you know, he came out and he accused us. He said, you know, the National Democrats are for this, so it must be bad. But like written into the bill was a prohibition on partisan gerrymandering. Let's get to North Carolina. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court of North Carolina just tossed out the Republican favored districts. What does that teach us? We know what the U.S. Supreme Court recently did in saying yeah. that uh, partisan districts are okay. What does North Carolina teach us? Does it teach us it's going to get overturned or does it teach us something that is useful to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think First of all, that Supreme Court decision, U.S. Supreme Court decision, was very disappointing on a lot of levels. The idea that federal courts have no role to play in protecting voting rights is just wrong. You know, what they said in, even in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, you know, one of the things he pointed to, among others, was that there are state constitutions and state courts that could potentially provide a remedy. And, you know, part of the NDRC, we have an affiliate, uh, the National Redistricting Foundation, that supports litigation over gerrymandered maps. And so we were actually funding the lawsuit in North Carolina that overturned uh, the Republican-drawn maps. And that is, in some ways, a model moving forward. Now that the Supreme Court has said, you know, you cannot use federal courts to challenge gerrymandered maps. Uh, there is, however, a mechanism through state courts. The state constitution in North Carolina in some ways has better or stronger protections uh, for voting rights than the U.S. Constitution. And North Carolina is a very challenging state in that you have 
unlike most uh, other states around the country, uh, in North Carolina, the redistricting process, it just passes the legislature and the governor has no role. In North Carolina, you have one of the most gerrymandered and also one of the most brazenly anti-small-D democratic legislatures in the country. If we did not have the state court you know, mechanism to get fair maps, they would basically be able to gerrymander themselves into control of the state in perpetuity. Last fall, Democrats won 51% of the vote. Republicans win 55% of the seats. You can't, there's no recourse for people in that state to vote Republicans out. The maps are just so gerrymandered, it's nearly impossible. And so it takes neutral court to force, you know, some sort of fairness into the process. Supreme Court ruled this summer that federal courts should not weigh in on protecting voting rights, at least where it comes to protecting them from districts drawn with a partisan motivation. Yep. Uh, that states should do that. Supposedly they could do a good job protecting voting, right, voting rights. But as you pointed out, if Republicans and when Republicans take control, they restrict voting rights. Is the Roberts court just not paying attention to the attack on voting rights when Republicans yeah. take control or are they just in favor of it? I, you know, I don't uh, I don't want to guess at their motivation. What I will say, though, is if you look at the Roberts court, this is something that Eric Holder, who's a lot smarter on these issues than I am, but believes very deeply. He thinks that the Roberts court be looked upon in a very unfavorable light for three rulings in particular. You had the Citizens United ruling uh, in 2010 that allowed a flood of dark money to infect our politics, including potentially money from foreign governments. You had in 2013, the Roberts Court gut uh, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County Division, which sort of opened the floodgates for a lot of these states to enact really stringent uh, voter ID laws uh, that were clearly targeted at uh, people of color. And then the partisan gerrymandering ruling uh, from this past spring, which, you know, when people are unable to elect a legislature because of the way the lines are drawn, the courts should be a recourse. Otherwise, you get stuck in this, you mentioned this earlier, feedback loop where you've got politicians in general just controlling the lines, letting themselves get reelected, and the voters are left with very little to do uh, to fix it. I hear the holder critique, and also interesting to me that he says, oh, well, he'll be looked bad in history books. Do they care how they look in history books? And maybe Roberts does, but when I read the synopsis of George Will's book, I mean, he just comes out and says that he wants a revisiting of the Lochner era. He, he wants a revisiting of the era of American Jewish prudence when the courts were protecting wealthy and corporate interests against voters, against Congress, against state legislators who were installing social welfare legislation. He says we, he thinks that democracy can go overboard, and that's why you need interventionist courts, not to protect democracy, but to limit it. I mean, this is a whole other conversation uh, on uh, the way that the Supreme Court is currently constructed and the way that conservatives have constructed their movement around electing uh, Republicans to the Senate who will put in place Federalist Society ideologues. There is, I think now, a movement or a growing awareness among people that, you know, we need to pay more attention to the way the courts are constructed or else we're going to be living in a very different country uh, than we think we do with 
regard to voting rights, corporate power, a whole number of issues. And it does seem tricky, right? Because so much we've relied on these norms, norms of politeness, norms of bipartisanship, norms of uh, what people will think, norms of what the media will say. But if those norms are not shared, if that media is not shared, if there is not a stable, agreed set of principles, and if you can buy the referee and rig the rules because there is not in fact a real referee, what is the recourse? We need to start winning back power and at the state level. A lot of this stuff stems from like what's happening in the states. So it's state legislatures that are passing these restrictive voter ID laws and doing all kinds of things to, to restrict who has access to the ballot. And we need to start building up a, a movement of people who are for democracy reforms and sort of build from the ground up, much in the way that Republicans, a lot of what they've done over the last decade started with, you know, winning power at the state legislative level in 2010. But I think that, you know, we're going to, we're at a tipping point in a lot of ways in America over a lot of these core, you know, democracy questions where people are, you know, wondering why it was okay for Senate Republicans to block Merrick Garland, but then ram through judges for, you know, President Trump. And why, you know, we have no voting rights where I live in Washington, D.C. I don't have any representation in my Congress, but I pay taxes. And, you know, they wonder why it's so hard for some people to cast a ballot. And so these are the questions that I think are going to animate uh, and should animate, you know, the next few years or longer even of politics in America. What is the purple or red state with the best redistricting process? I think moving forward, it should be Michigan, which is really a purple state, a swing state, uh, because of the commission. Uh, that they put in place, although Republicans are now suing to try to overturn it. Yeah. So if it's Michigan, they had a big and we and we talked to the uh, Katie Fahey. Yeah. Yeah. So what about other, a red a red state? Is there any red state in the country that has a process <laughs> that you don't think sucks? Currently, no. You know, the, the state one state that's interesting is Iowa, which is not a red state, you know, per se. It's more of a swing state. But Iowa, it, and it's particular to Iowa in that they have a person who is a nonpartisan staffer who works for the legislature draw the maps. And it ends up sort of looking like very square, you know, compact districts uh, because they sort of follow the county lines. I don't know that that would work in other states in the way it does in Iowa. Sort of a cliche, but people there are sort of nice and they've left the process alone. So there hasn't been an attempt, at least up until now, you know, to have politicians sort of influence that person who's drawing the map in the way that you might see in another state. But you think that could change? I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens in 2021. Republicans have said in the state that they don't want to change the process at all. Anything else we should be paying attention with respect to the courts? I think the thing to look out for is the census. You know, the one glimmer of hope from the Roberts Court in the spring was that they knocked the citizenship question off the census. This is going to go back to how the maps get drawn in 2021. There's already a movement in a bunch of states to get rid of drawing maps based on total population and use citizenship data to do it. So they will, like Texas is probably going to try this. And the court, uh, in a decision, I forget which year it was, but recently, left open the question whether states can use something other than total population to redistrict. And what does that tell us about the recent attempts to to rig the census, to ask a question, to try to get fewer Latinos, fewer uh, people who are concerned about getting identified either as or even nearby someone who's undocumented? What does that tell us about the current state of the democracy fight? You have a party that is more interested in changing the rules of our democracy and restricting who has an equal 
equal vote and equal say in our democracy than they do in changing their positions to garner more support. In other words, you have a Republican Party today that is perfectly comfortable taking minority view positions but exerting majority control because they are have their fingers on a lever of power and they're using it to basically cheat in some ways, cheat their way into holding on to power. And they're fine with that. What do people need to be aware of and watch for with respect to the census? The hard part about the census is that they're is a climate of fear that's been created by the Trump administration. And so there's going to be a lot of people who are just afraid to raise their hand. And the really tough thing is that that is the worst possible outcome. Everyone in America needs to raise their hand and be counted because the census gets used to determine political representation. It also gets used to distribute close to $900 billion in federal funds for things like healthcare, education, infrastructure. If you do not stand up and get counted, your community will lose out. It sounds like at least three takeaways are stand up, be counted, fight for democracy, and work at the state level. Absolutely. Thank that's, you. A, that's a good encapsulation. <laughs> Thank you so much for participating as, with us, Mr. Roddenbush. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to Katie Fahey for sharing her story of the movement to ban partisan maps in Michigan. Katie is currently the executive director of The People, a grassroots organization to return political power to the people and communities. More information at thepeople.org. Thanks also to Patrick Roddenbush. More info at democraticredistricting.com. Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis and Chase Spross. Thanks also to Dan Curtis at Danny C on SoundCloud for the music and to Cat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're at the beginning of this. Please subscribe and give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word. You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. And thank you, Democracy, 